These were treacherous times for the people of Israel. Their wicked king, King Ahab, had been guilty of leading the people to worshiping the Canaanite god Baal instead of the one true god Jehovah. And as a result, wickedness had filled the entire land of Israel until they were headed towards a collision course with the judgment of a just God. But in spite of their sins, we see evidence in this passage that God still loved his people. That's something we need to keep in our mind too as we look through the story today. In spite of their sins, God still loved his people. They were his chosen people, his set-apart people. He still loved them in spite of all they had done against him. Now it's likely that this account took place in the springtime. Springtime was a time when nations went out to war. In the verses we've just read, we find Israel about to be attacked by the Arameans. Now Ben-Hadad was the king of Aram. If you remember your Bible study, you will remember that Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, were Arameans. So there's a tie there, there's a connection there. Ben-Hadad had a huge army. The Bible tells us it numbered over 100,000 foot soldiers. In addition to that, he had all kinds of chariots and horses to fight with. And then in addition to that army, his own army, Ben-Hadad ruled over 32 kings. And even though today we might call those kings governors because they weren't, they weren't rulers over large amounts of land, each of these kings, each of these governors had their own military also, their own army too. And they would follow whatever directive that Ben-Hadad gave them. So there were lots of warriors involved. And when this chapter opens, the armies under the command of, of the powerful king had already surrounded Samaria. And they were putting a squeeze on it. They were, they were closing in for the kill. Now the other king in the, this picture is Ahab. Ahab was the king of the northern tribes of Israel, and he ruled from that city, from the city of Samaria that was under siege. Unfortunately for Ahab, his army consisted of only 7,232 people, soldiers, if you will, who did not possess the latest military technology, who had very few chariots and horses. If there had been online betting in Samaria in those days, the odds would have been at least 1,000 to 1 against Ahab. It even appears as if Ahab would have bet against himself because, because there seemed to be little doubt in his mind that the Arameans were going to clean house on Israel. Ben-Hadad, on the other hand, was so confident of victory, even before the battle began, he claimed the spoils of war. I don't know if you noticed that, but he claimed the spoils of war before the battle had begun, before the first sword was drawn. Verse 3 tells us that he demanded that Ahab turn over all of his silver and gold. Before the battle began, turn it over. And I don't know if you noticed, but not only did he claim the silver and the gold, he also demanded the best-looking Israelite women and the strongest Israelite children. Ahab was so intimidated by Ben-Hadad that he agreed to hand over the silver and gold along with the women and the children. Now, I can't imagine a king or a ruler ever doing that. But evidently, in, in Ahab's mind, from Ahab's point of view, being alive and bankrupt was a much better option than being rich and dead. And because Ahab gave in so quickly, Ben-Hadad decided to up the ante a little bit, up the stakes. So in addition to that silver and gold, and to the wives and children, the women and children, he demanded the right 
to go through the palace and to go through the houses of the rulers of the land and see if there was anything else that he could use, anything else he could claim, anything else he could take with him. It was the second demand that, broke, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was too much, even for a frightened Ahab, to let happen. And what ensued was a taunting match. Ben-Hadad said, I'm going to grind you into dust. And Ahab responded, the one who puts on his armor should not boast like the one who takes it off. In other words, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. In the battle that followed, the Arameans were defeated. It was amazing. The understaffed, underarmed Israelite army defeated the army of the mighty king Ben-Hadad. The Bible tells us that the defeat was, was so total that Ben-Hadad had to jump on his horse and flee for his life, or, or he could have been a casualty of war. So how was it that this puny little Israelite army was able to defeat this strong and mighty Aramean army? Why did this battle have such a surprising outcome? Well, the word of God to Ahab, through a nameless prophet, explains what happened. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 13. This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then, then you will know that I am the Lord. Did you catch that? It was God, not Ahab, who gave the victory to Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Where have we heard that before? Where have we seen what that means? Where have we seen examples of that? Think back in history. God did the very same thing at the Red Sea. When the Israelite army was pursuing Israel, that entire army was drowned in the Red Sea. He gave the victory. God gave the victory to Israel that night. They didn't even raise a sword. He repeated that when Gideon fought the huge army of the Midianites and won the battle with only 300 soldiers, none of which even drew a sword. God did it again in Jericho. Her great walls came tumbling down when the people of Israel shouted loudly. And when David faced Goliath, God did the very same thing. Imagine a young lad, a boy, a teenager, perhaps not even that old, going against a heavily armed warrior with a slingshot and a stone and taking down the giant time and time again. God did the same kinds of things through the ministry of Elijah. Consider the, the contest between the 450 prophets of Baal and Elijah who stood all alone in the power of God. And God did it through the life and death and resurrection of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, over and over and over again. God gave surprising victories against overwhelming and unbelievable odds. You will know that I am the Lord. The Hebrew word here for Lord is Jehovah. Jehovah means the eternal God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. We're talking here about the beginning and the end. We're talking about the God of all times and all places. You will know that I am the Lord. That was a message brought by the unnamed prophet to Ahab and Israel. And through them, it was made known to Ben-Hadad and Aram. And it's the same message, people of God. It's the very same message that needs to be proclaimed by pastors 
and Christians like you and me to a lost and sin world. It's a message that needs to go out. Because you see, it's important that the world knows that our God reigns. That he is the one and only God. And that he triumphantly acts to save his people. With those truths then in our minds, we can accurately say the first battle was won to show that God is Lord. But Hadad's advisors, of course, gave the surprising victory another explanation. Their vision of the failed battle goes like this. Follow along verse 23. Their gods are gods of the hills. That's why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them in the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. Isn't it amazing how unbelievers never want to admit that God is Lord and that he triumphantly intervenes into the lives of kings and nations. When I was growing up, one of our favorite wintertime games was to play King on the Hill. Some of you perhaps have played King on the Hill. Maybe kids still play King on the Hill. I don't know. The object, if you recall, was to climb to the very top of the biggest pile of snow you could find. Now, we had an advantage. We lived right next to the high school. and They had a huge parking lot. And they plowed up mountains of snow for us to play at. So the object was to climb to the very top of the biggest pile of snow and try to stay there, try to stand there, while your friends tried to push you off or drag you down so they could take your place. The person at the top was king of the hill. The Arameans were playing a version of this child's game. They believed whatever battle, whatever nation rather, won the battle on the mountain had a god who was the king of the hill, but only king of the hill. And they reasoned, since Israel fought and won the battle of the Mount of Samaria, their god must be the king of the mountains. And they surmised that the god of the mountains couldn't also be the god of the plains. It's a clear case of the wicked trying to change the face of God. For the next skirmish, the Arameans set up the battlefield on the plains. A few miles east of the Sea of Galilee. That's pretty much a desert area, pretty arid. They did not want to take the chance on the mountains. Not again, not at all. Because Ben-Hadad didn't fancy losing again to the Israelites for the second battle. He put together an even bigger and even better army than the one that he had before. When he fought the battle on the mountains. So on the day of the second battle, when that day arrived, the Israelites were once again hopelessly outnumbered. The Bible paints a very vivid picture of the battlefield scene for us. Verse 27. The Israelite army looked like two small flocks of goats, while the Arameans covered the entire countryside. It was reminiscent of David and Goliath. There's no way this is going to turn out well. But in the battle that followed, the Arameans were once again surprised. The stunning victory for Israel was a shocking defeat for Ben-Hadad. The Arameans lost 127,000 soldiers that day to the same understaffed, underarmed Israelite army that had beaten them before. Well, 27,000 of them died when God calls the walls to fall on them. The defeat was so total, Ben-Hadad had to once again flee for his life and hide in the inner room. So how, how did this puny little Israelite army defeat the strong and mighty Aramean army for a second time? Why, why this surprising outcome? 
word of the Lord to Ahab through that same prophet explains what happened. Verse 29, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is the God of the hills and not the God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord once again. Once again, it was God who gave the victory to Israel. After the first battle, Ben-Hadad declared Israel's God to be the king of the mountains. But now, now he had to admit that God was also the king of the plains. Too bad he didn't understand that God is king of absolutely everything. I think it's important for us to realize that God's intention in these two victories was not to teach Ben-Hadad and his 32 kings about himself. Wasn't that at all. His intention was instead to teach Ahab and Israel about himself. And here's why I say that. The prophet of verse 13 wasn't sent to Ben-Hadad and Aram. He was sent to Ahab and Israel. And he was sent to Ahab and Israel because they had problems recognizing that Jehovah was the only true God. They mistakenly thought that Baal was a God too, so they worshipped him. And they thought Asherah was a god too, so they worshipped her. And even after these two stunning victories, they still saw Jehovah as just another god to worship. Alongside of their Asherah poles and their golden calves and their bales, they too, they too like Ben-Hadad, kept trying to change the face of God. It wasn't always that way. Remember back, do you remember back to Mount Carmel? Their God showed the weakness and the nothingness of idols. Baal was unable to respond and answer Ahab's prophets when they called on him to send down fire to burn, to ignite their, their offering that was built on, on their altar. They ran around all day hollering and shouting and cutting themselves. It was obvious to the people who were watching that, that Baal wasn't a God at all. You would yell to him all day. You could yell to him forever. He would never answer. But when Elijah prayed, God sent on fire to burn his offering that had been soaked three times in water. The response of the people was, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And now, such a short time later, just two chapters later in the Bible, two chapters, it seems as if Ahab and Israel had forgotten that lesson. And so God announced victory through the prophet, you will know. That I am the Lord. God wanted to stop. God wanted Israel to stop waffling back and forth between two opinions. He wanted Israel to acknowledge that he and he alone was the Lord of the hills and the Lord of the valleys. That he was a king of creation and that he reigns and that he is sovereign over all things. But you and I must also not overlook the fact that God is speaking to us here. He's speaking to you and me here. Like the Arameans and Ahab and Israel, we need to be reminded that God reigns over all also. We need to be reminded that, that God is sovereign over all. We need that reminder because there are times like, like the Arameans, we allow God only to be king of the mountains and we don't want him to be the king of the plains. Let me, let me explain what I mean. It's easy for us to make God, the king of the church. But when we talk about money and possessions, well, that's a different story. We're content 
to make God the king in religion, but we really don't want him to be the king of our marriage or our other relationships. Oh, God can be king on Sunday mornings, but, but not so much on Monday. God can be king of pastors and Christian school teachers, but forget about it in the world of business and pleasure and politics. The thing that we need to remember is what Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians. He wrote, there's one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is one God. Now through these two victories, Ahab and Israel should have learned that God is Lord. That he is sovereign over all things. But what was Ahab's response to this revelation from God? Did he destroy Ben-Hadad, this, this evil king, this enemy of God? Verse 42 makes it quite plain that that's what God expected Ahab to do. That's what God wanted Ahab to do. But he didn't. Instead, Ahab let Ben-Hadad live. In fact, he even called him my brother. This newly formed relationship was made public when Ahab invited Ben-Hadad to ride along beside him in his chariot instead of making him walk alongside the chariot. That was, that was the custom in those days. The defeated king walked alongside of the chariot of the winning king. It was humiliation on the loser. But Ahab invited him to ride alongside. And a treaty was signed. And Ahab let Ben-Hadad go free. Now if the closing episode of this chapter had been written by a historian today, it probably would have portrayed Ahab's peace treaty as a stroke of diplomatic genius. King Ahab would have been praised for the national security and power, his shrewd negotiations guaranteed, but from God's perspective, it was all wrong, totally wrong. You see, the problem with treaties between nations was they always involved the recognition of each other's gods. And whenever evil comes alongside of good, there's always a good possibility that evil will prevail because we live in a sinful and evil world. It happened in Ahab's day. And it seems to be the same way today. Whenever you and I see how close we can live to the world and still, still call ourselves Christians, we walked on the same pathway that Ahab did, and we failed God. When Ahab made the treaty with Ben-Hadad, he was re reverting back to his old game of recognizing and accepting other gods besides Jehovah. In doing that, he limited the rule and the authority and the power of the one true God, and he failed God. Now, in this passage... I see at least three lessons for, for today. I'm only going to mention three. There are many more, but there are three lessons for us. The first is a very serious thing. Not to acknowledge God as the Lord of the hills and the Lord of the valleys and the king and ruler over all. Ben-Hadad did that. And he was defeated, not once, but twice. The call is for each one of us to examine our own life to see who it is that we really do serve. Now, I have no way of knowing what you're facing in your life today. Perhaps there's someone here who feels defeated. Maybe someone who feels a million miles away from a mountaintop experience. I don't know. But if that's where you are, let me remind you that God is God when you're on the mountain. But he's also God when you're down in the valley.
The words of Psalm 23 say it so plainly, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no, fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The secret to enjoying the mountains and the valleys is learning that God is in control, learning that God is sovereign over all things and all people, that he is with us, that he loves us and will not leave us. If you can do that, if you can do that, then whether you're at the top or at the bottom, you'll always be on a mountaintop in your heart. And victory will always, always be yours. And the first step at arriving in that place is learning to bring your burdens to the feet of Jesus, for he forgives those sins and walks with you. Second lesson is be aware of what God's will is for your life. Ahab ignored God's directive to eliminate the wicked Ben-Hadad, and in the end, it cost him his life. Don't ignore God's direction. I want to talk especially to the young people, but to the older people too, young people and children. Do not ignore God's direction. Remember the lesson of Ahab. Ahab spared the wicked king, Ben-Hadad. Ignoring God's direction will always cost you more than you want to pay. Always. And third, don't be allies with those who hate God. This is difficult, too, for us because I think that deep down we all want to fit in, which is another way of saying we want to see how close we can live to the world and still be Christians. We want to be on, on both sides of the street. Ahab spared the wicked king Ben-Hadad. In doing so, he led Israel deeper and deeper into idolatry. He fell deeper into sin. As a result, he signed his own death warrant. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. Don't, don't become allies with those who hate God. Find better friends. It's my prayer, people of God, that in God's strength you will fight that battle against sin, knowing you're not doing it alone. Knowing you're doing it with Jesus, he has your back. And in his strength, in his strength you will win. You will be a winner. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. What a precious word it is. Thank you too for the example of, of wickedness in the world, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But also thank you, Lord, for the reminder that your love is with us that you will not leave us, that we will not have to stand alone. We know, Lord, that you're sovereign over all things. Sometimes that's frightening because we, we don't want you to be. But, Lord, it's the best way because you know what is best for us. And so, Father, we ask that we may learn the lesson from the wicked king Ahab and from the even more evil king Ben-Hadad. May we learn the lesson that we put our trust in you, that we realize that all things happen in your time and in your place, even the things of our lives today happen in the time that is best for us. So, Lord, help us to, to fight evil because you are there with us. Help us to find strength in you because you are the strength. Help us to realize that if we want to be happy in the Lord, we have to be in the Lord. We have to open our hearts to you. Let us do that in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Our hymn of response is number 544, hymn 544, Lead On or King Eternal. Let's stand together and sing that. 